This is Space 101.1 KMGP LPFM, Magnuson Park. That sound can mean only one thing. That's right, time for another voyage exploring the past, present, and future of the old Oregon country. Come aboard and get set to ply the waters of the Pacific Northwest, metaphorical and otherwise, on another thrilling episode of Cascade of History. And now, stumbling out of the cluttered purser's office of the SS Columbia, here's your host, Felix Bonnell. Good evening and welcome to another episode of Cascade of History, the only live history show all about the Pacific Northwest in terms of news and stories about Northwest history. Um, I am Felix Bunnell. We're here for the next hour live on this great community radio station, Space 101.1 FM, blasting out at 85 watts, I think, all around North Seattle and over to Kirkland and streaming everywhere at space101fm.org. also at that website, space101fm.org, there's the entire program schedule. You can see the other shows that people put together other uh, times of the week, all throughout the week here on Space 101. Have a wonderful show tonight. Um, it's uh, not quite Thanksgiving here in the U.S., but we're going to be jumping all around the region. We're going to be up in Vancouver, B.C. in just a moment talking to Eve Lazarus. Lazarus she's a historian and author. She's got a new book out called Cold Case B.C., She's written a number of really terrific books exposing sort of the hidden history of Vancouver and British Columbia. We're going to talk to Jake Ream over in Spokane County. He's a historian and monument hunter looking for these terrific stone monuments that were put up eh, roughly a century or more ago, uh, marking different aspects of mostly 19th century history that some of the some of the verbiage on those monuments hasn't aged as well as the uh, stone themselves have. And then we'll talk to Arlen Washines, um, a Yakima Nation member, about the old residential school at what's now Fort Simcoe State Park over um, on the Yakima Nation. And then I think Ding Dong the History Clown is going to stop by with one of his fabulous history stories. But uh, if you have any questions or comments about this show or show ideas or guest ideas, you can always send email to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. We love to take those suggestions. We're looking for stories, interesting things people are doing around Northwest history, in what's the old Oregon country, Washington, Oregon, Idaho, British Columbia. We cover the entire region. We love stories. We love to hear about museums, historical sites, just people doing interesting stuff to keep history stories being shared throughout the decades and centuries. So let's go ahead and see if we can get uh, Eve Lazarus to join us now. Eve, can you hear me? I can. Ah, terrific. And let's see. I think everyone else can hear you, too. Thanks for joining us. Are, are, we, are you actually in Vancouver, B.C. tonight? I am. Okay. Now, I've been aware of you for a long time. I think we follow each other on Twitter. I think I've seen some of your books when I've been uh, up in Canada. But what? how would you describe the, the beat that you cover with the, and the work that you do in British Columbia and Vancouver? Well, I guess it sums it up on my blog, Every Place Has a Story. I call it History, Heritage, Buildings, and Murder. <laughs> and that pretty well <laughs> Wait. The, the books and the blog and the podcast and, Very good. and everything else. And how long have you been doing this kind of work? Well, I kind of fell into it, I guess. Um, I was a, a reporter uh, with the Bank of the Sun, actually, in the early 90s, and uh, freelanced and uh, wrote for various business trade magazines for a couple of decades and just sort of fell into history one day. I was kind of reading an article about this guy that was a health detective in Vancouver, James Johnston, and uh, 
he would research people's heritage houses and tell them everyone that lived there and all the events that had taken place. And I thought, wow, that's so interesting. And I'd called up James and said, hey, I'd really like to write an article about you. And he kindly took me on a tour. He lived in Strathcona, which is um, close to the downtown east side, but full of all these gorgeous heritage houses. And you know, he'd sort of point out, oh, this was a bootlegger's house, and this was a brothel, and this was, um, you know, some corrupt cop lived here, and, and Katie Lang lived over here in the 70s, and it just went on and on and on, and I was just, you know, I had my mouth open, and I thought, oh, it's just so interesting. And I just wrote a number of stories, you know, about what James was doing, and found a couple of people across the country that were doing similar things, and and started um, getting published in, you know, articles like the Globe and Mail and Nouveau and, you know, Style at Home is fairly large magazines. And I thought, oh, my God, I've got a book. Yeah. It's it's funny that sort of that permeable wall between journalism and history. I, you know, there's sort of uh, some people cross back and forth. It's 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 such a natural progression uh, in some ways. Well, it really is. I noticed you call me a historian and I I really don't think of myself as one. I, I kind of think of myself as a reporter that tells stories about history and and true crime and, and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, because at home with history, the simple idea was that, you know, a house has a story like a person, you know, a heritage or a genealogy, and you can sort of find out all about these stories. And, and suddenly I was writing about history, and a couple of books later I realized, oh, I'm actually writing about true crime now. Yeah. That's kind of embedded <laughs> in history, and I didn't really see that happening. I think you were doing true crime before it was cool to do true crime, I think. <laughs> yeah, and even I didn't know I was doing it. It was kind of, oh, I'm writing about the seedy, you know, stuff about Vancouver's history. And, you know, suddenly I'm writing about murders that took place in, in houses, you know, house murders. And, you know, yeah. and, and then that sort of turned into Cold Case Vancouver several years ago. And the new book is called Cold Case BC, so it covers the whole province. Um, and, and, it does. And I think Americans here on this side of the border, we think we can buy it online. Are we able to buy that book? Do you know? Uh, it's coming out in the States in May. Oh, okay. I'm not sure if you oh, can buy it up. wow. Okay. <laughs> now, you can buy it through my publisher now, though, um, Arsenal Pulp Press. Okay. So that's, if you go right. online and uh, Cold Case BC, you can buy it through them, and they, they will ship to the States. Okay, that's now. good to know. Now, um, one of the cases you mentioned, I think I heard a little bit about this either on CBC several months ago or maybe I read it on the CBC website. There's something known as the Babes in the Woods case. Right. What a terrifying yeah, name. Oh, God, I've been obsessed with this story for decades now. And uh, it, I wrote about it in uh, Cold Case Vancouver. And, and but, you know, for people who don't know the story, it's, um, Two skeletons, two tiny skeletons, were found in Stanley Park back in 1953. And a uh, Parks Board worker had uh, stepped on some leaves and heard a crack and, and uncovered these skeletons that were covered up by a woman's fur coat. Uh. And forensics were pretty rustic, basic back then. And um, they, ca- they basically came and they counted the layers of leaves and threw all the bones and everything around there in a cardboard box and took one or two photos, and, and that was it. And somehow, even though skeleton remains were really difficult to determine sex, the pathologist at the time thought that they were a girl and boy, and this sent detectives down the wrong path for like 45 years as they looked for a brother and sister that were missing. And when DNA came out in the mid-'90s and they tested um, the teeth of the boys, 
uh, they found that they were in fact two boys, two brothers, not oh. not a boy and a girl. So had they known that, they probably would have solved it. But you know, who knows? And so for decades, you know, I remember when I first came to Vancouver, I went to uh, at this breakfast meeting at the Vancouver Police Museum, and it's the old morgue. And if you've never been, have you been there? I have not. I've got to add that to my list. Oh. <laughs> Next trip, it's a fabulous building. So it's now the Vancouver Police Museum, but. It was the, the original old morgue and the city analyst and it, you know, the autopsy suite and everything's pristine. It's all there. It's all being kept as is. You know, the coroner's court, the autopsy, everything. It's quite um, spectacular. And um, uh, it, uh, the bones and everything had been taken there and they'd actually been put on display. So when I was at this breakfast meeting in the 80s, I was actually looking at the, the real skulls of the children. Wait, and wait, wait. Not, they, they had those on yeah. display in the museum? Do they still, yes. do they still have them on display? No. <laughs> oh, man. That's, God, no, they didn't. That's, but isn't that brutal? And yikes. They actually went. We've got the annual PE, the Pacific National Exhibition. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Been many year. times. They went on display there no. for a couple of years. No, you're on no, tour. In the 19, oh, no, in the, wait, the 1980s, that recently? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't. I thought Canadians weren't that grisly about stuff like this. I thought Canadians are much more refined and more reserved rather than to put bones on display. Oh, it, it's pretty bizarre. I mean, they have now, you know, sort of plastic casts of skulls, but oh, not the real thing. Oh, man. But, so when DNA came out in the 90s, they formed the uh, Provincial Unsolved Homicide Squad, and one of the detectives, Brian Honeyburn, decided to take a look at the babes in the woods and you know, went to the police museum and found, you know, the skulls and whatever all on display and carted them all off and, oh. and, and had them tested. And that's when he found out that they were boys. And, uh, yeah, they didn't go back on. Uh, but one of the problems was that, uh, <laughs> that Brian had uh, decided that it was very disrespectful, which was true, but he decided on his own to have most of the bones cremated. Now, who, who's this? So... This is the detective that okay. um, found the, the DNA. So okay. he took them out and had the bones cremated and buried at sea and kept, you know, small parts of the DNA. And, and there was a problem because they haven't been able to get, or hadn't up until about a year ago, been able to get enough DNA to form a profile that could be sequenced and sent to GEDmatch, which is huh. the, the um, a database, the genealogical database in the States. Huh. And they finally, they finally, though, against all odds, you know, technology's improved, and they managed to get enough DNA from the oldest skeleton. And that was through the, the lab in Thunder Bay, the university here. And they sent that off, and it was uploaded into GEDmatch, and they got a hit. So it was just amazing. So I <laughs> was told by a couple of sources that they'd identified the two boys back last February, okay. but I couldn't find out anything else, just that there was going to be you know, a press conference imminently by the Vancouver Police Department. And, and then I was contacted by this young lady, and she had said that um, the police had been to see her mother and told her that her uncle were the missing babes in the woods, oh. the murdered boys, and they'd never heard anything about the story. And so they'd gone online and they'd found my podcast about the babes in the woods. And she got in contact with me, wow. and uh, it turned out that um, the the mother, uh, her the mother's mother. And this gets really confusing, actually. So you've got the two babes in the woods in the 40s, and they had an 
older sister Diane. And Diane, uh, in 19, it was 2020, was still alive, but quite ill and quite sick. And her daughter had sent off her DNA to my heritage to find out her ancestry uh, and find out what they could do. And her daughter, Ali, the youngest, had decided, wow, you know, uh, the story in the family has always been that social services took the two boys away from the family because they were so poor. You know, it was during the war years and mm-hmm. she was a single mother and, you know, that was quite not, you know, not unusual. So Ali thought, wow, well, maybe they're still alive. And if I, you know, spit into a tube and send it off to Ancestry.com or one of those, maybe I can find them. Or if I can't find them, maybe I can find their children or grandchildren. Anyway, she did that. So suddenly there are two profiles, family profiles in there. So when they actually loaded up the uh, older boy's DNA, things happened really quickly. They were able to identify them quite quickly. And they turned out to be um, David, seven years old, and his brother Derek D. Alton, who was six. And they were murdered in 1947. And who was the murderer? Well, they don't know. It's still unsolved. Uh, police have always believed it's the mother and okay. that the mother probably committed suicide, which was, again, quite common. You know, when I was doing research into that huh. period, uh, you know, I found, I think, three cases in, in that year where a mother had killed the children and killed herself, and one was throwing them over a bridge and then jumping off after them, and the other two were in the gas oven. So she gassed them. But this one was particularly brutal because they were bludgeoned to death Mm. with an, an axe. Um, so, you know, qu- quite a horrific murder. Uh, but, you know, it was, again, it was thought that she would probably kill herself. But um, Eileen, the mother, lived until she was 78 years old. She only died in 1998. Huh. And when I talked to her granddaughter, she said, oh, no, she would never do something like that. She was a very sweet old thing and, you know, looked after children and loved animals and, and all wow. of that. But, you know, the police are still convinced that she's kind of number one suspect. Um, I'm not so sure. Where were the two boys living uh, when they disappeared? They lived all over the place, but mainly oh. in Kitsilano. Oh, Kitsilano, which is, is the uh, other side of the bay. Yeah. Okay. Huh. Yeah, wow. they went to school there. Um, Ali had sent me a picture of the older boy, Derek, in his school photo. Jeez. In what looked like 1947, probably just before he was murdered. And, wow. And, uh, you know, here's this little blonde boy, and you know, it was quite strange to see him, pictures of both of them, actually, after God. all that time and after obsessing over it for so many decades. Wow, yeah, that's what a, I mean, so it's amazing they identify the victims finally, but just it's so so twisted that they still don't know who the murderer is and that the fact that the bones were in the custody of a museum and at the PNE like that, that's that's all oh, yeah. that's all that's that's a that's a bizarre twist for sure. Um, now, in case you just joined us here on Cascade of History, our guest is Eve Lazarus. She's up in Vancouver, B.C., and she's written a book called Cold Case, B.C., a number of other books about, oh, hidden history in Vancouver, true crime in Vancouver, and history of individual homes and things like that in the Vancouver and British Columbia area. Now, one of the other cases you mentioned when we were um, trading emails before coming on tonight, um, something called the Molly Justice case from Victoria. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was a, a really fascinating case that um, I first heard about when I was writing a, a, another book called Blood, Sweat and Tear, and it was uh, the story of um, Inspector Vance, our first forensic investigator. And I was going through his files, and um, he, in, he was called in to do the forensics on this murder back in 1943. 
And the more I started digging into it, the more fascinated I got. And here she is, it's 1943, so we're right in the middle of the war, and uh, she was a 15-year-old girl who lived in Saanich, and that's just outside of Victoria. And uh, she was a, a seamstress on Government Street, and, you know, in those war years, a lot of you know young girls worked at that point. And uh, so she was full-time working, and she caught the bus home every night at about 6 o'clock, and it wasn't very far. It was probably about a 10-minute ride. And on this day in, in January 1943, it was a particularly cold night in Victoria, you know, minus 10, which is really unusual. And mm. it was, you know, as I said, wartime, and there was a blackout in force. So it would have been pitch dark. And she got off the bus and, and took a shortcut home. Uh, she lived just by Swan Lake. And hours later, she was found beaten and stabbed to death in the snow. Jeez. And she lived, you know, close by. She lived with a mother and there was an older brother and a a mother's boyfriend and his 21-year-old son. And they were investigated. uh, I'm not sure how well. But it took, you know, it it was just bizarre at that time. I think police um, stations had probably been decimated with everyone fighting in the war. And I'd heard someone describe them as farm boys given guns. And and, and that was pretty much, it sounds like, the investigation. It, It wasn't very thorough. It took them two weeks. You know, they had to wait till the snow melted before they found any clues. And they found her purse and a number of other items. And and then it just sort of went on hold for, for oh, probably five or six months. And sadly, a, a young girl, she was only 11, she was playing uh, near her house, uh, which was quite close to where Molly was murdered. And she was approached by a teenage boy, dragged into the bushes and, and raped with a knife at her throat. And he told her, you know, if she told anyone, he would kill her like he killed Molly Justice. And um, she managed to get away, and she had a description of him, and he even, you know, pointed out the house where he lived. So even with all this information, <laughs> police um, go interview this kid. He's obviously disturbed. He's 15 years old. He's got you know, quite a rap sheet already, sexually abusing boys and girls. And he's working at a paint factory in Victoria. And he tells them, oh, no, it wasn't me. It's this guy, I'm older guy I'm working with killed her. He told me all about it. And by the way, he sexually assaulted me. And they believed him. <laughs> so wow. they put this poor guy, this 49-year-old guy, former RCMP officer from, from Quebec, He's um, never been to Saanich, never heard of Molly Justice, has no idea what's going on. And um, they put him up for trial. And these are the days where, you know, you got convicted for murder, you got the death penalty. Yeah. And um, finally, you know, he was in trial and finally common sense prevailed and the jury, you know, acquitted him. And he actually sued newspapers and everything and, and won. Uh, but this boy, this 15-year-old boy, was never charged. He was sent away to, to juvie to serve out these sentences for sexual assault and all sort of thing. And it became even more bizarre because his name was um, interchangeable in the newspapers as um, Pepler and Hobbit. And Pepler was the Deputy Attorney General. And this kid said it was his uncle. And, oh, wow. Well, the Attorney General is denying the relationship, but then he refuses to, to prosecute the, the Molly Justice case. Uh, not saying why. So, you know, that was all a, a bit of a mystery. And, and then nothing happens. 20 years goes past. 
And um, the police received an anonymous letter about Molly's murder that they figure only the killer would know. And so they reopen the case. And again, they look at Frank Hobbit, who's now 40 years old, living in a trailer. And they decide, you know, the prosecution says, oh, too much time's gone past. We won't get a conviction. We'll convict him of perjury, you know, for lying about, you know, the, the, the poor guy that he yeah. sexually abused him and murdered him. So he goes to jail for five years. Huh. And then he's out. So years and years go by again. And then in 96, the provincial homicide units formed, the same one that looked into the Babes in the Woods case. Yeah. And they take another look. And, you know, it's, it's thoroughly investigated, I guess, this time, but it's still unsolved. It, it's so bizarre. It just seems like such a case that would be easy to solve. And while I was digging around in that case, I, I came across his name, my family standards, who went by the name Dot, and she was also 15, and she was murdered two years later in Saanich. Wow. But she just goes away, like nothing's ever said about her. So I started digging into her story, and it, it turns out that um, she, she didn't come home, her father reports her missing, no one takes her seriously, Goes two weeks go by, and I say, oh, she's just taken off, you know, don't worry about it, and then her body turns up, and she's been beaten, and she's been suffocated not far from her house. Uh. So it goes to a coroner's inquest and they decide, mm, oh, it's undetermined. And that's it. Nothing ever happens. So, you know, it, it just, it's driven me insane that they haven't, it's not even on the books as an unsolved murder. She was just completely forgotten about. It, so it, I've kind of written about her and in the hope that at least, at least she'll be remembered and, and put back on as an unsolved murder. And, and there's no DNA evidence in either of those two cases that could be um, exhumed and examined to, to point to any kind of suspect? No. Wow. No. And the, the problem with the cases that I'm working with, I, everyone I've written about has come out quite a few years before DNA came yeah. out in the 90s. And, and evidence was just not kept well. You know, it was thrown out, it was lost, it was contaminated. So very few of these cases have any DNA to test. So yeah. the only way that these, they're going to be solved is, you know, if we keep writing about them and talking about them and, and just maybe, maybe someone will come forward with information that um, might help solve something. Yeah, God, I hope so. Well, Eve Lazarus, thanks for joining us on Cascade of History. Oh. Um, and tell us, people, your web address. I know you have all sorts of stuff at your website with, with your podcasts and information about your other books. What's the web address people can look at to it's find out more about you? Just my, just my name, evelazarus.com. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for joining us on Cascade of History, and we'll uh, talk to you. We'll, have you. we'll definitely have you back in the future. Maybe when your book comes out here in the to. States, we'll have you back. I would love to. Thanks right. so much for having me. Good night, Eve. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Now, uh, Coming up in a moment, uh, Jake Ream is going to join us, the historian and monument hunter in eastern Washington. Um, I want to switch gears, really uh, make a hard left here. Thanksgiving's coming up and then Christmas. Where the station's located here at the historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, now Magnuson Park, we're just a few blocks away um, from one of the final homes of uh, Stan Borson. He's the legendary Scandinavian, uh, the self-described king of Scandinavian humor. Did a lot of parody songs, had a kids' TV show back in the 50s and 60s. Passed away not too long ago, in the last 10 years. But he put out a Christmas album back in, I think it was 1970, called Just Go Nuts at Christmas. And this is a song from that album called uh, Uncle Sven is Coming to Town. (laughs) 
You better watch out, have yourself a good cry. You better watch out, I'm telling you why. Oh, Uncle Sven is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it once. That is because he is such a dunce. Uncle Sven is coming to town. You can tell if he's sleeping or if he is away. He don't know if you're bad or good, so be bad for goodness sake. Oh, Jiminy Christmas, that Uncle Sven. He's the way oddest fella since I can't remember when. Every Christmas he visits us here and then he stays over till Happy New Year. He knock on the door and says, here I are, and brings his own pickle herring in a great big fruit jar. When he comes in, he says, I won't be no trouble to you, but troubles we got and there's quite a few. Sven walks in and says, Merry Christmas to all. And my wife and me, we got to sleep out in the hall. He stays in the bathroom for two or three hours, shaving and things and taking those showers. He drink up all the booze he can find, and he says, it's good for me. It helped me unwind. He takes a drink in the morning, his nerves to improve, and by noon, he's a steady, he can't even move. Stoned, huh? He eat everything that we have in the house, and he doesn't even leave nothing for our pet Christmas mouse. Then after New Year's, we say, goodbye, Uncle Sven. But we know that next year, it will happen again. Oh, you, oh, you better, better watch out, have yourself a good cry. You better watch out, I'm telling you why. Uncle Sven is coming to town, he drive us crazy. Uncle Sven is coming to town, but we still love him. Uncle Sven is coming to town. Stan Borson on Space 101.1 FM, live from Sandpoint Naval Air Station, historic Sandpoint Naval Air Station, nowadays better known as Magnuson Park. I'm Felix Bunnell. It's Cascade of History, the only live show all about news and stories of Northwest history. Uh, going to welcome our next guest. Jake Ream is a historian and monument hunter over in eastern Washington. Jake Ream, can you hear me? I can, Felix. How are you doing? Uh, wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us on Cascade of History. I was introducing you as a uh, historian and monument hunter over in eastern Washington. I think uh, you and I have talked on the phone once or twice before, and I think we were friends on social media. But uh, yeah. I noticed you were spending a lot of time driving around um, some of my favorite parts of the state over there in Spokane County and Lincoln County and, uh, boy, uh, what's the one that Pullman's in? Um, Whitman County. That's Whitman County. Yeah, yeah. You're getting all those uh, all those uh, counties way, way far east looking for old monuments, um, and not just any old monuments, but monuments that I think, uh, in many cases, the Washington State Historical Society, with help from some other local groups in some cases, put up to commemorate these old-school 19th-century historical events that, and the, sometimes the verbiage doesn't age so well, or the, or the, the interpretation of the events doesn't necessarily uh, age so well, but what are some of the monuments that you've come across lately? Sure. Well, yeah, so as you mentioned, I am kind of a monument hunter. It was part of my graduate research at Eastern uh, to study 
uh, not just the monuments that the State Historical Society put up, but, you know, Daughters of the American Revolution, uh, the Spokane County Pioneer Society. Um, as of late, though, I've been working specifically um, on an article hoping, or hoping to get it published in uh, the Columbia, the Historical Society uh, magazine, about the State Historical Society monuments in eastern Washington, because as you mentioned, some of them are kind of far out here and far out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of how I first discovered them, you know, back when I was a first-time graduate student in physical education, I'd take my bike out on, you know, long road trips. The Palouse Hills are great, you know, bicycling country. Anyways, you'd stumble upon these little, what looked like concrete pyramids just off in the distance. <laughs> You're like, I wonder what that is. And, you know, you go up to it and it'll say something like, Military road placed here by the State Historical Society. And you're like, what in the world? Anyways, that yeah, that led to a, a big, I suppose, uh, study of a lot of the the more uh, local monuments. <laughs> do you ever Past get a couple months? Go, oh, oh, go ahead. I was going right. to say, do you ever get a sense sometimes when I'm doing similar work or similar uh, uh, pursuits? I'm out there looking at a monument, and I wonder, why aren't a thousand people here doing the same activity? Why am I the only one out here doing this right now? Do you ever get that feeling? <laughs> oh, my goodness. You know, sometimes, but I'll tell you what, some of the history in eastern Washington, I, it's not, you know, on a lack of effort from, you know, the part of historians, but a lot of the history that is commemorated in our monuments over here is, I don't want to say it's obscure history, it's just, it. it it doesn't rank in the annals the way, like, for example, in uh, south of Cheney, we've got several monuments commemorating the Mullen Military Road. And uh, an historian will tell you, yeah, the Mullen Military Road was absolutely important. It connected, you know, east to west. It is still being used, blah, blah, blah. But when people think of pioneers, they think of the Oregon Trail, not the Mullen Military Road. You know what I mean? Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. South of Cheney, we've got all these Mullen Military Road monuments, which admittedly are cool, but um, <laughs> it's it just, like I say, when I was a graduate student at, it, back, what, 15 years ago, and I first came upon one of these, I had uh, Military Road, what's that mean? You know, I had no idea what it was. So, um, now, having said that, you know, there, some of the monuments here in eastern Washington, the earliest monuments, um, some of them were built specifically to be put in places where they would get a lot of visibility. So, like, uh, in 1922, is actually just 100 years ago, actually, the, the two Mullen Road monuments in Spokane, one of them's on Sprague Avenue in Spokane Valley, you know, one of the main dregs in the town, and the other one's up on the Palouse Highway, which at the time was the main highway to go south to Pullman. And so they, they were built with visibility in mind, but, you know, yesterday I not to change gears too much, but I went down to Goldendale to uh, see if I could find one of their two monuments commemorating the murder of a guy named Andrew Bolin. He oh. got killed in 18, 1855, yeah. And I, Goldendale isn't a particularly big town, and it's not particularly close to Yakima, but I found the first monument. It was about 15 miles out of town. The second monument was about five miles up into the mountains, and I couldn't quite get there, and like I say, not not much visibility uh, in mind when they dedicated that second one because it was actually placed on the site where this individual was murdered. Wow. One of my favorite ones there, not too far from uh, Cheney, or actually maybe it's even in Cheney proper, is the uh, is the Battle of Four Lakes. It's a, like a triangle. 
It's off of I-90, and they've left a little stretch of, um, I think it's old U.S. Highway 10. It's like right there in place along, and you have to kind of go behind it. somebody's house down kind of a dirt road. <laughs> yep, you, you've got it. That, that <laughs> monument in particular, it's, it's one of the more famous monuments, I suppose, in the area. It's, it's, first off, it, it was uh, dedicated by the Spokane County Pioneer Society in, I think, 1935 or 36. One of those years. Mm-hmm. Um, the State Historical Society, a member of it, actually had tried to get a, a Four Lakes monument built earlier, I think in 1927 or 28, but he just couldn't quite swing it. But in any event, yeah, the monument at Four Lakes, it's funny, you know, the dedication of that monument, um, I mean, hundreds of people showed up. The governor, uh, oh, goodness, I, his name escapes me off the top of my head, and I'm was, embarrassed. I'm was embarrassed it Governor today. Martin? Was it Governor Martin at that point? Yeah, Clarence Martin? Clarence Clarence yeah. Martin. Yeah. Um, he, he spoke at it. The uh, I was looking at the program, and one of the per- persons speaking was talking about how the monument would bring, uh, you know, a lot of tourists to the area, and there was going to be a greater economic prospect because of this monument. And uh, you go there now, and, I mean, the monument's still there, but it, the, the lot it's sitting in, uh, I, I, it looks like it hasn't been, you know, taken care of in any real form in at least 10, 20 years cracked pavement and stuff. Yeah, because I, I guess the State Historical Society doesn't necessarily have the staff or the budget to have people out going around, you know, um, doing the the maintenance, the basic maintenance on these monuments. And if they're off the beaten path ever so slightly, there, I guess they're sort of uh, kind of out of sight, out of mind. It's kind of cool when you find one that's sort of hidden away. Um, I guess it's it's cool for the person finding it, but I guess it, it'd be better if they were if they were more visible. Are there any that you've, that you've come across where the... Um, they, they celebrate something that now would be considered not politically incorrect, but just sort of uh, that we've sort of evolved past celebrating something like this or the interpretation of a particular, I don't know, some kind of a battle involving indigenous people or something is now interpreted in a way that's not the way the monument interprets it? You know, something that Eastern, the, the State Historical Society monuments in eastern Washington, most of them did a pretty good job of avoiding anything too you know, by modern standards, a little bit, you know, too taboo. Okay. The the Spokane County Pioneer Society, on the other hand, they, I mean, they commemorated the site where uh, Chief Qualchan was hung. That was, you know, kind of one of uh, Colonel George Wright's most infamous acts on his 1858 campaign. You know, they, they commemorated the site of the, the horse slaughter, which That's right. um, was the, the, the killing of 800 Coeur d'Alene horses, a, a, another one of his infamous moments. Uh, it's not like they were out there, you know, celebrating that Wright did that. And mind you, it, it's the it's the the horse slaughter monument. They had Native Americans there as part of the the, the dedication. But um, the the State Historical Society and the Pioneer Society they actually collaborated on uh, the Battle of Spokane Plains monument. They collaborated with the Great Northern Railroad. There were some historians with the railroad, and the, the railroad dedicated the site. It's, it's one of the biggest monuments. It's out in Airway Heights. It's, it's pyramid-shaped. It's beautiful. I've seen and, that you know, one. It's, it's right across the street yeah. from Fairchild Air Force Base, isn't it? Yep, yep, yeah. you've got it. It's, it's a very handsome monument. And, of course, you know, it, it commemorates the fight, and, you know, the fight led by Colonel George Wright. You know, it's, it's obviously commemorate. It, it commemorates both sides of the battle, but... Um, even at that dedication, though, I mean, I think there were one or two hundred Native American uh, individuals in attendance. And so, hmm. um, you know, it, it's it's not that they are, 
controversial by modern standards. It's, they, they certainly draw attention to acts that I think at the time of their dedication weren't considered as heinous as they are now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think that's probably a better way of putting it. And, and I know I think their plans are ultimately for the State Historical Society to lead a campaign that would reinterpret monuments like this. Um, you know, we've, we've seen, obviously, much more drastic action taken around Civil War-related monuments in other parts of the country, although we had that in yeah. Seattle as well. We had some Robert E. Lee stuff removed from a private cemetery. But yeah. I, I, I always hope for, for the ability to, I don't know, leave the original monument in place but add new interpretation that updates the, you know, the, the, the progression of how these events are interpreted and leaves the fact in place that, like what you're describing, these individual events where these monuments are dedicated, the people who were there. I mean, I don't, I don't want to lose, I don't want to lose the history by eliminating the monument or altering it, so you can't really tell what it used to say. I mean, it's complex. Right. It's a case by case basis kind of thing. But I, I it, it doesn't seem like there's some groundswell to remove any particular monument that I know of in in Washington, um, although we did have that, we, we've had that ongoing thing around the Confederate monuments related to the uh, yeah. the uh, Civil War and the work in the 1930s to try to rename the highway through, uh, you know, northbound or south, north and southbound Highway 99 to name it a, a uh, over after Confederate, you know, Confederate generals and that sort of thing. So... Uh, right. Is there any sense? Is there any number? Do you? Is there an estimate for how many monuments like this are actually out there, either in Eastern Washington or the whole state? Is it? Is it hundreds or is it dozens or any idea? It's it, it's closer to dozens than hundreds. I mean, now mind you, I'm talking like the State Historical Society has on this side of the state around a dozen. The west side of the state, they've got one or two dozen. I admit my my ignorance of the, the monuments on the west slope of the Cascades is a little bit. Probably unpardonable. <laughs> no, no, um, no, it's quite all right. <laughs> I mean, you, you see monuments sometimes, and like I say, every now and then, like, so, for example, yesterday, the, 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 the monuments commemorating the, the, the site of where Andrew Boland got murdered, you know, they, the, the verbiage reads, like, you know, was killed by Indians, you know, like, it, 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 kind of speaking in kind of a harsh tone. Um one of the things I'll say about monuments is, you know, I've, I've, I've kind of tread that, that subject lightly with tribal historians that I've talked to. And the, the historians that I've talked to, none of them are really interested in the removal of any monuments, or, you know, at, at least in the Spokane area. Mm -hmm. um, I can't speak for the ones down at Goldendale because I haven't consulted with any Yakima tribal historians. Mm -hmm. But what, what, I, what, I've, what I've heard from, you know, tribal members is, they're not really interested in, you know, something that's built on the ground. Their interest is much more in the land. And so, like, what I've what I've heard people talk about is, um, for example, Steptoe Butte. There's a state park there, um, that, you know, commemorating the, the name Steptoe Butte is uh, after Colonel Edward Steptoe, the, the, the Army commander who was defeated by the Spokane, Coeur d'Alene, Palouse, and uh, Ponderay in 1858. Um I've talked to tribal members who say they would much rather see Spo or Palouse, I mean Steptoe Butte, be recognized by its tribal name than they yeah. would, you know, see a monument get, um, you know, removed. On that note, I've also talked to members who, well, I, 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 the State Parks Department um, has worked with some tribal historians to um, produce what you just said, you know, signs 
you know, adding to the monument site, providing greater context, you know, shedding light on perspective that may not have been there initially. Uh, again, though, not really a push to remove anything, yeah. more just to bring attention to, to different areas. And also on the note of what you said, the, the State Historical Society is currently, they do have a monuments committee. And in fact, it's uh, my, my thesis advisor, Dr. Larry Sabula, him and um, uh, Allison Campbell of the State Historical Society, they're both on that committee. And Terrific. They are actively reviewing monuments, both on this side of the state and on the west side of the state, um, to do what you said, uh, ensure that they're in alignment with the, the values of the historical society. Yeah, very cool. I know there's one of my favorites over here on the west side is actually it's for the um, the observance of Independence Day on 1841 when the Wilkes expedition was in in the area, and that since July 4th fell on a Sunday, they didn't celebrate till the Monday, July 5th. Um, but the monument itself is now within the bounds of Fort Lewis or Joint Base Lewis-McChord, so the public can't yeah. even get to it. And it's been there since uh, 1906, something like that. And uh, it's I got to visit it about five or six years ago, got to take pictures of it and everything, but it's just this little this little white picket fence oh around it. Oh, my God, it. that sounds... And it, it's, it's like this incredible, you know, American statement of Americanism. You know, the, the British are nearby, the Hudson's Bay people are nearby, and the Americans are marching around and blowing off fireworks. And one guy hurts his hand blowing off a firework. They, they have a barbecue. I mean, it's like an American Fourth of July in 1841. And this monument's just, you know, hidden away in a military base. No one can get to it. So anyway. Um, My goodness. All right. Well, Jake, it's really nice talking to you on Cascade of History. Thanks for joining us. Hope we can have you back again sometime when your article's published. And I'm sure we'll keep checking in with you about other stuff going on in eastern Washington because it's, it's a big part of the story. So thank you so much for being a guest tonight. My pleasure, Felix. Thanks for having me, man. Have, have a good Thanksgiving. Thanks, Jake. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Jake Ream. Now we're going to have uh, episode seven. This is the concluding episode of The End of the Oregon Trail. This is our special commemoration from 1946 of the Olympia Brewing Company. And then we'll have a special guest from the Yakima Nation. September 30th, 1946. A pretty tall climb from those days back in Independence when the whole Northwest Territory was wrapped up in the hearts of a daring few. Paved roads and steel rails have covered the wagon ruts, but those self-same stately pine and fir trees still stand as welcome sentinels. And the dust of the trail is lost from view at 20,000 feet, and the trip from Independence, which took months for those first few who said Washington or bust, can now be a matter of hours. And yet there is no great change. For those who first traveled the Oregon Trail looked up to the pine tree and crystal summit and the horizon for the promise they sought. And we look down on that promise fulfilled in a boom of industry and development with still new distant horizons yet untouched, unreached. Yes, a long, long time from the days when the Simmons party left for Oregon and when Leopold F. Schmidt came up the Missouri River by sternwheeler to Montana. They came, each of his own free will, and they set the foundation, the pattern, humble though it was, for the great northwest of today, built with enterprise as free as the spirit of Westwood Ho. Could they see the northwest today, would they be surprised? Or would they say, I knew it? Today at Tumwater, there stands a monument. It 
It was erected in honor of those pioneers of the Simmons Party who came to Tumwater to establish the first settlement north of the Columbia River. It bears this inscription. This stone, erected by the children of the late Leopold F. Schmidt, Tumwater citizen, in obedience to his wishes. It honors those first few, Colonel Michael T. Simmons, James McAllister, Gabriel Jones, Samuel B. Crockett, George Bush, Jesse Ferguson. kept weary hearts strong to the end of the Oregon Trail. This has been a special half-hour program commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Olympia Brewing Company. Our special thanks to Bing Crosby for appearing on this program to play the part of his great-grandfather, Captain Nathaniel Crosby. Original music by Malin Merrick. Script by Rich Hall. Narration by William Conrad. The End of the Oregon Trail was produced in Hollywood. <laughs> So you'll note we really stretched out. That was part seven um, of a what originally was a 30-minute program back in 1946. We really milked it for all it was worth. <laughs> Stretch it out over seven weeks, or maybe, I think eight weeks, because we had to skip uh, an episode one week because we ran out of time. All right. Um, want to have our next guest join us. This is Arlen Washines. He's with a uh, member of the Yakima Nation. Can you hear me, Arlen? Yes. Oh, terrific. Thank you so much for joining us this evening on Cascade of History. Um, I saw a report that um, Drew Mickelson um, from King 5 had done about the old residential school that was at what's now Fort Simcoe State Park in the Yakima Valley. And um, Yakima Nation feels like the story is not being told enough about the residential school that was there at, at, at Fort Simcoe. The history of Fort Simcoe seems to eclipse the history of the residential school. What, what, when was the school there? Tell, tell me more about the school. Well, the school, the school was opened in 1860. It was uh, opened after the fort was built in 1956 by the U.S. military there at, at Fort Simcoe, what oh. is what we refer to as a place called Momo. Okay. It's just the name of the springs, the water that's located there. Okay. And the school was operated for how many years? It closed in 1922. Wow. Yeah. And so for those who don't necessarily know the background about what these residential schools, what the whole point was, can you kind of tell us what the, what, the, what the American government was trying to do to young indigenous kids? Well, of course, a lot of, there's a lot of history that 
has never really been told the true real history about what took place way back uh, and uh, you know the the western movement of the non-indigenous people that came out west and they began to lay claim to lands and territory and you know centered around things like the discovery of gold and minerals and you know just farming and finding a place to to live and uh, to to farm and raise their family and so it started uh, way back before uh, back in the back during the time that Lewis and Clark came out and after that followed and um, and so it w- there was a history of uh, wars that ensued um, between the, the United States government and not only the Yakima people, but, you know, various, uh, over 580 tribes in the United States. So yeah, there was a, there was a big battle and a war that continued on. And, and so, um, there were things that were done and eventually that up to both sides, basically just getting tired of, you know, killing and fighting and, um, nothing seemed to, um, you know, move forward uh, from what one side wanted, and uh, so uh, there were some things that were done to try to um, eliminate uh, the culture of our people, uh, genocide, if you will. Yeah. Try to change us and try to what they what they had interpreted it to be was with the boarding school, the residential boarding schools was was basically uh, what they had said was to educate our people and help us uh, learn to become uh, uh, acquainted and affiliated into uh, mainstream society, civilized, and and so forth. And and so that that was what they had indicated back then. But, you know, like, if you look back at the history of all of the wars between the United States government and the and our indigenous people, one one of the main things that they did was to take away our food. First and foremost was to take away the food that we used uh, to live on for centuries since time immemorial. Yeah. Um, the foods that were abundant that we lived on, and, you know, we cultivated, uh, uh, we processed them and used them. And so they began to try to take those things away, um, try to find out where we went to gather them. And, and so they would set up <clears throat> various posts to try and to find us to um, basically um, kill us. Uh, and so when those things didn't work, and as time went on, we signed a treaty. And and so um, there, there was an effort then to... Um, take away a lot of our things that they thought our ceremonial way of life, our language um, that they thought would uh, encourage us to continue to uh, not want to uh, become, I guess, if you would, uh, civilized individuals according to what they thought was the civilized people. Yeah. Um, and so, so they, they, they built the boarding schools pretty much not 
they said to educate, but it was far from wanting to educate us. It was basically to take away our 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 uh, our customs, our culture, our language, our the way that we believed, our songs, our ceremonial way of life, uh, to change us so that uh, we would assimilate into a mainstream society and and become, uh, I guess, if you will, civilized individuals so that we would not rely too much on the land that we held sacred to, to our people. You know, you know given how hard they, uh, given how hard the U.S. government tried to stomp out Native culture, I think, you know, and viewing Indigenous people as just an obstacle to, you know, to Western visions, Western versions of land ownership and, you know, Western versions of mining and massive scale agriculture and, you know, mechanized transportation and everything. It's amazing that you guys survived. I mean, the, and the culture, the fact the culture does survive is great. And I'm, and I'm really, I'm really glad because I just, I love the stories. I, I mean, the, 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 the long thousands of years that indigenous people have been here mean that there's all these great stories about this part of the world that I love more than any other. I, I was born here. My parents came here 70 years ago, came to the States and came to Washington in 1959. But I just, I love this area and I love that there's, there are people have been here for so long and I'm so glad that we, you know, the U.S. government failed in, in, in wiping you guys out because it's just, uh, it's, it's, it's too, uh, the stories are just, are too great to, to, to not kind of honor and, and raise up. And I mean, it feels like these stories, like the, the, um, the boarding schools in Canada, where there's all these unmarked graves that they've been um, trying to research and figure out and identify who's, you know, who's been buried and, you know, how many people were, were just died and not told about, you know, families weren't told about it. It seems like, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but is it, is it the, is the, is the scale of the atrocity less in the in the U.S. or is it just as bad compared with Canada? Well, it's, it's just as bad, um, okay. if not if not worse. Um, oh, geez. Okay. In, it, but like the place at Fort Simcoe, it was a, a hub of our people. It was a place where we always gathered, where a lot of our tribal members gathered uh, every year, and so and a lot of them just lived there. Uh, for a long periods of time, so um, so we had cemeteries already there okay. before the, the fort was built, before non-indigenous people came. So we we did have our own burial sites there, but and so it's hard to say if there's any of those children that didn't make it home. I, I would imagine there are a lot of them there, but okay. you know we we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between whether we bury them or the boarding school personnel bury them. So okay. we, it's kind of hard to tell. But throughout the United States, there was like 408 boarding school, residential schools that were built. And so if, if you just can count the number of children that were probably there, I mean, they, they went clear back to Carlisle Indian School in Pennsylvania and we turned some back to the Lakotas uh, from there, they mm. found. So, um, and, 
And are you hoping that the state, Washington State Parks at Fort Simcoe can do something more in terms of interpretation, in terms of actual sort of archaeological investigation? Or how, how are you, what, what's, what are next steps in terms of bringing this story, carrying this story forward so more people know about, about the schools, about what really happened there? Yeah, we, I recently had some discussions with uh, the area director for the state parks, and we kind of, you know, talked about, you know, what, what we could do. Um, there, there's an interpretation center there, but it's uh, kind of uh, not not in good shape. So we talked about building a brand new one that would uh, do, you know, tell the true story about our people, just the history of our people, yeah. the history of the park, um, you know, and the true history of what happened to us. Not only what happened to us, but you know, how it failed and how we have progressed into uh, survival today and how our culture is still alive, our traditions, our foods, our feasts, our ceremonies, our language. You know, even though a lot of people have lost the language, we are starting to retain it back and get it back. And so, you know, we, we want to we build an interpretive center, a new one, and also some other facilities there just to help educate the public that do come. God, that would be great. If there's anything we can do to help with that or any, anything, um, we can have you back on the show again. I'd love to hear more about the plans. I need to come over and pay a visit. I haven't been to Fort Simcoe for a long time. I need, I need to come back and pay a visit there. But um, yeah. All right. Um, Arlen Washines, I want to thank you for joining us tonight on Cascade of History. And um, we'll keep our eyes out and definitely keep people updated if this project progresses. Because, again, it's for me, it's all about these wonderful stories and tr- troubling stories, too. But just all everyone who's ever lived here in the Northwest, I mean, our stories are all worth sharing. And I hope that hope that something comes of this. So thanks for taking time yeah. to join us tonight on Cascade of History. All right, Felix. Thank you. Good night, sir. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good Thanksgiving. Bye. Yeah, you too. Thanks. That was Arlen Washines. He's a member of the Yakima Nation, talking about their efforts to uh, call attention to the residential school that was at what's now Fort Simcoe State Park over in the Yakima Valley. Well, uh, Thanksgiving is next week. We'll be here on Sunday night with a new show one week from tonight on Cascade of History. Uh, You can get our podcast at soundcloud.com. We're also on Apple and Spotify. Uh, Send any questions you have or any suggestions for guests or show ideas to cascadeofhistory at gmail.com. Um, This is Space 101.1 FM. It's a terrific community station. We're here at the historic Sergeant Arms Quarters in the gate at the old Sandpoint Naval Air Station at Magnuson Park. Have a great week. That sound means the steamer Columbia has reached the end of another thrilling voyage around the Pacific Northwest. Be careful as you go ashore. Watch it, watch it. That's a slippery spot there. I'll bet that hurt. When that whistle blows once again, be sure to meet us at the landing and be ready to climb aboard a little more carefully next time for Cascade of History. Cascade of History is produced in Seattle by Felix Bunnell. (laughs) 